focuses on God's provision for parenting. And as I've introduced this the last couple of weeks, we've thought about how this applies both to our parent-child relationships, our grandparent-grandchildren relationships, as well as the privilege we have and the opportunity we have in the church to be a blessing to other families. Maybe we're a little bit further along in our journey, but other people are coming along and trying to raise their kids and they need encouragement and prayer and um, guidance along the way. And we have the opportunity to do that as church family also. In the last session, we focused on uh, your identity in parenting. And I said specifically, you are created in the image of God. And that concept of the Imago Day gives you inherent value. Uh, because God has created you in his image. And even in our fallen condition, we retain uh, the essence of that, and then God redeems it, and he brings us to himself, and he begins to grow us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. I also said that God had a plan for your life even before you were born. Our lives are uh, bookended. Uh, God knows the story from the beginning uh, to the end. And the most important part of that story is the redemptive story of how God brings us to himself and changes us and grows us to be like Christ. So in recognition of your identity, the best and most important thing you can do as a parent is to grow as a child of God. So one of our goals in being parents is for our children to be able to say that our parents love God as the priority of their lives. That ought to be the focus for each one of us. As a grandparent, that should be a priority that we can say uh, we love God and we've given that as an example and as a priority for our families to follow after. Psalm 103 and verse 13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God shows us that compassion so that we can show that compassion to the people in our lives that are closest to us, that God has entrusted to us uh, to be their parents, to be their family. Now, I want to draw a contrast in parenting as we get started to make a greater point. And that contrast in parenting that I want to draw is between Eli and Samuel. I won't go into great detail about their stories, but you might know a little bit about the framework of it. Uh, Eli was a Jewish priest living in the days of the judges. Uh, He served God at the tabernacle in Shiloh, a city near near the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, Eli had two very wicked sons named Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, They served in the tabernacle also, but the distinction was they did not know the Lord. They violated the law of God by keeping and eating meat from the sacrifices that God never intended for them. Uh, They also had relationships with the women who served at the doorway of the tabernacle. Their behavior was well known, and Eli got word of it. He was told what was happening. Uh, But when he did, he rebuked them, but he just rebuked them. He did not make them stop, and they continued on in their wicked ways. So as a result, God sent word to Eli, and he said, I'm going to cut short your strength along with the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. 
What happens to your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. What God did was he cursed the household in their family line, and they would be supplanted by another. We have, on the other hand, the example of Samuel. Samuel, of course, dedicated to God by his mother in a vow that she made before he was born. Uh, Even as a child, he ministered before the Lord. Samuel had two sons, Joel and Abijah, who sinned before God by seeking dishonest gain and what the Scripture says, perverting justice. They had been appointed as judges, but the elders of Israel told Samuel that because he was too old and his sons did not walk in his ways, they wanted Samuel to appoint a king to rule over them, just like the other nations. God permitted it, but he warned the people of what was to come uh, from their dissatisfaction. Now, here's the point that I want to make. Both Eli and Samuel had disappointing results with their children. God punished one for ineffective parenting, but he blessed the other. What is a principle that we can draw from that? Well, very basically, ultimately, it is the faithful process of parenting, not necessarily the end results that the Lord evaluates. We are not in control of the end results. As I've said several times as we've gotten started in this study, people make their own decisions. There's this thing called free will. People can rebel against their parents and against the Lord. And we're not going to answer ultimately for the decisions that our children make or our grandchildren make, but we will answer for how we have led them, the example we have given them, the role model that we have been or not been, and God is going to hold us accountable for that. And thankfully, there's grace applied to us in that regard as well. So what I want to do in the balance of the time that we have tonight is I want to share with you six ways that God makes provision for parenting. Six ways that God makes provision for parenting. Number one, God gives direction to help you raise your children. God gives direction to help you raise your children. The passage of Scripture that I want to point to is Proverbs 3 and verse 5 and 6. A very familiar passage to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely or lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Uh, you remember Solomon uh, advised his son to live a life of trust in God. Uh, and God is certainly worthy to be trusted. But the proverb reminds us here that the counsel that children need is direction from their parents that is within the wisdom of God. This word trust that he leads with here in verse 5 means literally to lie helpless and face down. Warren Wiersbe said it pictures a servant waiting for the master's command in readiness to obey or a defeated soldier yielding himself to a conquering general. It takes a lot of trust to raise kids. It takes a lot of trust to guide a family. Because there's so many things that we live under this illusion that we have control of. And the reality is we don't have control of much of anything. 
And if we are trusting in ourselves, that's going to fall short. But if we're trusting in God, then he can give us the direction that we need in order to raise our children. And to trust in the Lord with all your heart is an unwavering confidence in the Father's provision and to not rely on your own understanding. Now, I think what's in view here is self-sufficiency and self-dependence. And just as in every area of life, self-sufficiency and self-dependence can get us in all sorts of trouble. And that's true with our parenting as well. Because we want to control the situation. We want our kids to do exactly what we want them to do or think they should do. We try to guide them in that. And it's very easy to get into this mode of thinking it all depends on us. But God's word says if we will acknowledge him in our own lives, then he will make our paths straight. So what do we do with this direction that God gives to us uh, in guiding our children? How do we help our grandchildren? How do we help our families as we give them direction according to the direction of God? Well, I think in part at least, we need to be clear in the direction that we're providing. Do you know sometimes kids get mixed messages? uh, And that can especially be the case from a faith perspective, because we can give them the message that God should be the priority, his word should be the guide, uh, our service to him should be what's most important, but then if our lives are incongruous with that, if we're doing something different from what we're saying, we are giving unclear direction to our kids. So we want to be clear in the direction that we provide. We want to be clear about the boundaries. We want to be clear about what we want to achieve, them to achieve in their lives. And as we do that, we should also be consistent in the direction that we provide. Now, this is really important when it comes to the relationship uh, in a marriage relationship and relating to children in particular. Nothing will get your kids off track more quickly, probably, than a mother and a father who are inconsistent in what they're telling the kids or how they're directing the kids. And we need to be together on that, even if we might be in slight disagreement behind the scenes as we're working through things and processing things and talking about things. There needs to be a united front in a, in a consistent message in what it is that we're teaching our kids. We also need to let them know that there are consequences for their decisions. This is part of discipline. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But we want them to understand you can make that decision, but you're going to have to pay a price for it. There are going to be these unintended consequences. There are going to be these things that are going to come upon you. Uh, You're not being punitive by being realistic with them and saying, listen, if you go down that road, this is what you're going to have to deal with. But you're helping them to understand that there are consequences to the decisions they make. Everybody has to learn to make decisions. Everybody's going to make poor decisions. But if you've given them clear direction, you've been consistent in doing it, you've given them an understanding of the consequences, then you're helping give them the tools to make those decisions, not just telling them what to do. And what does it mean ultimately to trust God with our parenting and with the direction that we provide? I think it means that we trust God with the past. Uh, We all know that there are times... 
when we've not been great parents. There's nobody in here, if they're honest, that would give a, a clear-cut evaluation of their parenting where they would say, I always did everything right. I never made any mistakes. I never had to apologize. There's not anything that I look back on and think I could have done differently or maybe shaped a little bit better. That's true for all of us. So we've got to come to the place where we trust God with the past. Uh, We uh, trust his grace that it's there for our children and and move forward uh, into the present. And we trust God with the present also. Uh, One of the things we're learning, especially with adult children uh, who are coming into their own and, and figuring things out with their lives is that in the present moment, every season has its own challenges. So it's a different challenge when you've got little babies in the diapers and you can kind of pretty much do what you want to do with them. And then they get uh, bigger and they get out of those diapers and they get mouthier and they've got ideas of their own and they're Try to, trying to kind of figure out their personality and their place in the world. And that just grows as you go along. And it gets different at every stage of life. But if you're trusting God with the present, you're not worried about what happened in the past. You're taking the moment, you're living in it, and you're trying to live according to what that moment is. And then, of course, we trust God with the future. I've already mentioned this, but control is an illusion Uh, Every situation our children will face in the coming years is an unknown. And I got news for you. Every situation we're going to face in the future is an unknown. We don't know what it is. We don't know exactly what's coming, but we know that God is faithful and we know we can entrust our kids to him and our families to him. And that's part of the letting go and believing and having faith rather than trying to control. And here's something I've seen through the years. I've seen it uh, in some of my own family relationships, as well as uh, dealing with a lot of families in ministry, the more control that a parent or parents try to have on their children and over their children, the less they actually end up having. And what I mean by that is it it becomes a self-defeating mode of operation. And I understand there's a fine line in this because you need to continually speak truth into those kids' lives. You need to point out to them when they're doing things that aren't wise. You need to help them make decisions and ask questions. And, hey, have you thought about that? And how are you processing this? And what are you going to do when this happens? All that's part of parental wisdom where you're helping them navigate it because you've done some things yourself that you've learned the hard way. And it would be unloving not to tell them some of those things because you might help them avoid some of it. But it's different when you get to those more developed ages to ask questions, to pose situations, to provide wisdom versus just trying to control the situation. Because controlling the situation will typically bring rebellion. We have all the direction that we need if we'll trust in God for our parenting. Number two, God is the builder as you raise your children. God is the builder as you raise your children. Psalm 127 in verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. And unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. Anything you do, whether you're building a house or guarding a city or working in a job, is worthless spiritually and eternally unless the Lord is in it. Two times he repeats in Psalm 127 in verse 1, unless the Lord. 
And in repeating, unless the Lord does something, he hammers it home with uh, the word vain. The word vain basically means empty. So he's saying, unless the Lord's in the middle of this whole thing, the whole thing is, is empty. Now, why is this important? It's important because we tend to see ourselves as primary and then God as secondary. And when we take credit, we fail to give God the gratitude that is due him. Now, I know we don't often do this consciously. So, for example, if I were to ask you what and who should take, a, uh, take priority in your life and in your home and in your family, everybody in here is going to give the Christian answer. We're going to say God should. He's number one. He's the priority. He's got the answers. But the question is, is that really being lived out in your home? And in your parenting? And is he truly the number one factor in your home? Is he the one who is building it? Daily, we need to recognize our inability and seek God's blessings. And I think it's ironic to a degree that uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, uh, failed to apply his own words. In fact, his son and successor to the throne actually rejected wisdom and split the kingdom. So we can build and we can watch, but it's the Lord who gives the success. And I love this metaphor for building because building is a metaphor for God's activity in our lives. And I did a little study on this and I found that the Hebrew word for house appears around a thousand times in the Bible. And it's an important word because it refers to households and families. Now, what we should be thinking about when we think about households and families and building those is something that is a place of structure and something that is a place of security. Now, that's not true oftentimes in people's homes. They think about their homes and they think about chaos and they think about hurt and they think about challenging and broken relationships and they think about the things they don't have and that ought not to be for us as Christian families we should be building homes that are places of security and structure and in that God is the master builder of our lives and of our families now it's interesting that God as the master builder is also uh, a similar metaphor is also used in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 7 talked about how we build the house? In Matthew 7 and verse 26, he said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So the foolish man labored on his house, but he left the Lord out of the process. And here's something I think about a lot. There's a lot of people that are building their own lives, but they're not necessarily building their own homes. There's people that are working really hard and they're chasing after vocations. And that's even the primary goal for their kids. If they were really to answer in a judgment day, honest kind of an answer, what do you want for your kid? What they really want for them is they want them to have financial success. They want them to look like something in the world so that everybody else will think they did a good job in parenting. 
You can have a child who's successful in everything in the world and looks successful to the world, but if they're spiritually missing out, that's not ultimately what your prayer would have been as a Christian parent. That's not what you're wanting. So you're wanting to build them and the Lord would give them spiritual success. And the foolish man, he labored on his house, but he left the Lord out of the process. Uh, Y'all might have seen the story a little while back about the uh, building collapse in Miami, Florida. And the investigation is actually ongoing. Uh, It was the deadliest accidental building collapse in American history. They're focusing at the current time on the lowest part of the condominium complex, around the underground parking garage, where they think an initial failure could have been something that set off a structural avalanche. And the terminology that they used is interesting, and I want to apply it to families. They use the terminology of a progressive collapse, the gradual spread of failures within the building structure that could have occurred because of design flaws and poor construction. You know what I've noticed through the years? Most families don't suddenly implode out of nowhere. It seems like that sometimes. I mean, I've dealt with families and I'm like, this feels like this is like just an immediate implosion. And it can happen occasionally where something catastrophic happens and somebody makes a poor decision or somebody goes off in a direction that's ungodly or somebody does something that's just awful and it ends up imploding the family. But you know what's more normal? A progressive collapse. A family that is not built on a solid foundation where God is not building the family. And what looks like a sudden collapse is actually a collective weakness within the structure that eventually shows itself. And that's something we don't want to happen in our families if we can help it. We want to be sure that we are building on the right things and that the Lord is building the house. And you have the help that you need building with the help of God. Number three, God is the protector to help you raise your children. God is the protector to help you raise your children. Psalm 18 and verse 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Under the old covenant, God promised protection to his people as they kept the law. And what was interesting about it is that divine protection extended to keeping them safe against the nations that would come against them. And God said to them in Isaiah 52 and verse 2, he said, you will not leave in a hurry and you will not have to take flight because the Lord is going before you and the God of Israel is your rear guard. Now I know the question you're thinking here, if I'm going to tell you that God is the protector to help you raise your children, then does that guarantee that you're not going to experience pain or loss as you build your family? And the obvious answer is no, that's not what that means. We can look at any number of examples in the scripture. A classic example would be Job, who illustrates that although God can deliver us out of every trouble, sometimes it is not his will to do so, or he's using those trials to purify us. Also, God does not shield us from the results 
of the consequences of our own sins or necessarily the negative effects of the sins of others on us. We live in a sin-fallen world, and because we live in a sin-fallen world, we have to endure its hardships. And Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John 16 in verse 33. So where's the safest place to be? It's in the center of God's will, but that can also be the most dangerous place to be. Because we're not guaranteed comfort or ease or a trouble-free life or any of that stuff. But we want to be where we're ultimately safe in the arms of God. I read an illustration about the safest place on earth. Some of you might know where that is, but it is reportedly Fort Knox. The colloquial for the U.S. Bullion Depository. It houses $137 billion worth of gold, 5,000 tons of precious metals behind a 22-ton door. The combination to that door has been disseminated to 10 different staff people. Each staff person has a partial code. Nobody knows the total code. The code has to be inserted one person at a time, and behind that door in the treasury is the safest place on earth. But even if you're crafty enough to break the code and get in, you wouldn't make it very far. You have to get past armed guards, uh, missile tanks, potentially Apache helicopters, infrared surveillance, video cameras, and concrete reinforced granite walls. And if you try to break in, obviously, you're going nowhere. At the height of World War II, Fort Knox had the privilege of housing some of the most precious documents in the world, including the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and the Gutenberg Bible. It housed the crown jewels of the English family and some of the National Reserve of other European, European countries. When we think about safety on the earth, that would in fact be a safe place. People build houses now with safe rooms. Maybe somebody here has got a safe room in their house. But as we go through these different things that we think about bringing us safety, we also know that there is ultimately no place on the earth that can completely bring us safety uh, from the things that can come against us. I think we've seen that uh, in the culture of fear over the last two years, especially, uh, we have tried to build up this illusion that somehow we can make ourselves, quote unquote, safe. And friends, nowhere ultimately is safe. There's no amount of money that's going to keep you from aging. There's no amount of money that's going to keep you from weakness or disease or death. We're all subject to these realities. And regardless of who you know or where you've been or what networks you're connected to, all these things we try, but ultimately we are in the hands of God. And I want you to know that you as a parent and as a grandparent should do everything you can to provide a secure home, a stable, safe place, so to speak. But there are things that are ultimately out of your control. 
And you cannot, in every moment, in every situation of life, perfectly protect your kids. And in fact, if that's your mindset, you may just be doing them a disservice because you're not teaching them how to navigate the world and to understand that there are dangers, dangers out there. There are challenges before them, and they need the help of the Lord ultimately more than they need anything else. The primary promise in the new covenant focuses on what? On God's spiritual protection against the enemies of our soul. God does not tell us that we're going to be perfectly safe from every possible scenario in this world. In fact, we know that we're not. What does God give us? He gives us spiritual armor. Ephesians chapter 6. He gives us his own peace to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells with us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. So what we're hoping is, is that our kids and our grandkids will have a relationship with Jesus Christ so that their eternity is secure and so that they can navigate this world with some spiritual armor and with just some good practical common sense to be able to protect, protect themselves from the challenges that come their way. And we want to pray that they're going to be delivered safely into God's heavenly kingdom. So what do we do? We draw near to God. We trust his protection. We use it for good in our lives and in the lives of our children. And we know that we are cared for, but we're not living under this earthly illusion that we're always going to be safe because we're not. Jesus tarries his coming. Everybody in this room and everybody listening to this message is ultimately going to die. It's a reality. We don't need to be fearful about it, but it's eventually going to come. So what do we do in the meantime? We live for the glory of God in the fullness of life as he's given us. And we know that our ultimate security is in him. Number four, God gives wisdom to help you raise your children. He gives wisdom to help you raise your children. James 1 and verse 5 and 6. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. I think I would get a collective amen here that parenting is more an art than it is a science. It'd be really nice if we just had an instruction book that said, when they're from zero to three, this is everything you ought to do. And it's going to just be splendid. And you're going to take them to the next stage. And then when you get to those older years, when it gets even more challenging, more complicated, more complex, if we just had a perfect instruction that said, well, this is what you do in that situation. This is your answer. But we don't have that. So what do we need? We need wisdom. But you know what the truth is? Every situation in the Bible uh, that's given to us is provided for us as wisdom to give us a framework to deal with the rest of life. So we know that everything in life is not mentioned in the Bible. There's a whole host of things that are not mentioned specifically. So I'm thinking, what do I do in this situation? Well, I can't turn to a chapter and verse that's going to give me exactly in that situation, in this moment, in my life, in this circumstance, what do I do? But there's wisdom there for every situation. And it's similar to that concept of 
I'm not telling you what to think. I'm telling you how to think. That's what wisdom from God is. God tells us what to think as far as the core principles and the things that are of significance. But even more importantly, he tells us how to think. And he gives us that framework to process things. And because parenting is complex, we need wisdom. When it comes to practical matters like education and extracurricular activities and social interactions and a host of other things, we can labor under a sense of guilt. And we can start asking questions like, are we doing what our friends are doing with their children? Are we doing what the culture says that we ought to be doing or not be doing? Are we raising our kids in the way that other church people are raising their kids? Are we measuring up to our own expectations that we have set? And we start asking all these questions and we end up just weighing ourselves down with guilt and we're more confused than we were before. So we need wisdom from God to know how to guide our kids and how to shape them. Proverbs 4 and verse 1 says, children, listen to the instruction of your father and be attentive in order to know insight. So let me suggest some specific ways that you can apply wisdom as you parent and as you guide your larger family. Apply wisdom to the boundaries that you set for your children. There are just common sense boundaries, of course, things you do, things you don't do, things that are a good idea, things that aren't a good idea, and those are pretty common. Just common sense and a little bit of parental uh, guidance would show you those things. But there are other situations where it's not quite as clear. You need to know, well, how do I set the proper boundary for this child in this situation at this age, according to other things that are going on in their lives, according to their own ability to handle responsibility? I mean, there's a whole host of stuff that you're trying to figure out. And you can just pray and you can ask the Lord to give you wisdom on those boundaries that you're setting uh, for your children. I remember a few years back, we had uh, Danny Aiken uh, come from Southeastern Seminary, the president of Southeastern Seminary, and he did a marriage conference for us and spoke on a Sunday morning, and uh, he was helping us in, in a family conference is what it was. And at that time, when we had him come, uh, our kids were getting into those middle school years, and the uh, future was in front of them, and we're getting into more complex questions about uh, what how we should be guiding them and, and helping them make decisions and so on. And uh, Danny said something that was one of, the most imp- one of the most helpful parenting tips that I ever heard. And they have uh, several uh, grown sons who are stellar in their Christian testimony and in ministry involvement and their lives and their family. He and his wife have been greatly blessed with their kids. He's done a really good job Uh, and are a good example with their family. And he said when their boys were coming of age and really beginning to make their own decisions and getting into those teenage years and everything, he said, we gave our kids a big playing field. And he said, as long as they stayed on the playing field, he said, we let them make decisions within that. He said, but if they got off the playing field and they knew where the ultimate boundaries were, then we dealt with it. And we, we gave them, you know, clear direction. He said, but otherwise, we didn't give them over re, overly restrictive boundaries. We didn't try to control them. We, we gave them this playing field so that they could learn how to navigate life on their own. 
that was super helpful for us as we were getting into the older years, like I said, uh, to be able to think that way. Okay, we're going to give them a big playing field, but we're going to give them boundaries. We're going to tell them where the out of bounds is. Uh, we're going to tell them how far the boundary goes. And you've got to have wisdom to be able to help your kids in that. And if you'll pray, the Lord will help you uh, in that regard. And then I'd say apply wisdom to the discipline you measure to your children. This is a difficult one as well because every uh, child is different. Uh, depending on how you apply the discipline, uh, something that you apply to one child may be meaningless to another one. Uh, something that you apply to the other one might be very helpful to them, but not very helpful to your other one. Uh, there's not an exact template. There are some principles that we apply, but we need to have some wisdom on how to do that to best shape the heart of that child. Um, apply wisdom in a way that helps your children learn how to apply it themselves. And what I mean by that is learn to ask good questions. So if you're telling your child what their discipline is or, or something specific, a good principle to apply is to ask them a question, for example, about what they've done wrong. Well, do you think that was wrong? Why was that wrong? Why was that a poor decision? What could you do better next time? Um, how can I help you do better next time? You know, wh what, what's a way that we can help you make better decisions? And there's just a lot of interaction there to where it's not just one-sided. And if you're, if you're applying wisdom in that and helping them think for themselves, what you want them to do is to think the next time before they do something dumb like they did the last time, you want them to think, is this a good idea or is there a better way that they can honor you? You don't want uh, compliance just for the sake of compliance. Ultimately, you want them to do what's right, but ultimately you want their heart to be shaped. And you can know what to do because God will help you and he'll give you the wisdom. Number five, God gives power, love, and a sound mind to help you raise your children. God gives power, love, and a sound mind to help you raise your children. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So let's break this down just quickly. God has given us a spirit of power. When we follow his word, we have his power supporting us. So what this means is that God's power is at work helping you help your family. And you can believe that. God has given us a spirit of love. That means that we are driven as parents by love. And God has given us a spirit of sound judgment. And the idea here is of a calm, self-controlled mind in contrast to panic. And there's a big difference between fearful parenting and trustful parenting. I got this term, trustful parenting, uh, from a term that was coined by a psychologist by the name of Peter Gray. I don't know much about him, but I like this particular aspect of what he teaches. He wrote, trustful parents allow their children as much freedom as reasonably possible to make their own decisions. They trust their children's instincts, judgments, and ability to learn from mistakes. Trustful parenting, he says, is the most natural and least stressful form of parenting for both parent and child. But then here's what he goes on to say. He said, the enemy of trustful parenting is fear. And it runs deep in society. 
It runs rampant, not because the world is truly more dangerous than it was in the past, but because we as a society have generated dangerous myths about dangers. And here's the example that he gives. We are afraid strangers will snatch our children away if we don't guard them constantly. We're afraid that our children are going to be homeless or in some other way, uh, colossal failures. We're afraid that if they don't get all A's in school, that their life is not going to be good. We're afraid if they don't do all the extracurricular activities or they don't get into a top-ranked college. And he said somewhat more realistically, we're also afraid of others' judgments of us. If others see that we're not guarding, pushing, and pulling our children in all the ways that society says we should. Now, let me make this as clear as I possibly can. If you parent as a fearful parent, you will produce fearful children. But if you parent as a trustful parent, as a faith-oriented parent, then you can produce children that are like that. Now, these last two years have been a perfect example of that. Um, And not living in fear doesn't mean that threats are not real or loss is not potentially great. It means simply that we respond to things differently than people who don't have faith. And what you want to try to grow in your children is a strong confidence in God and a confidence about life. We have the ability, and your children will have the ability as they grow and as they come into adulthood and beyond, to recognize legitimate dangers. I mean, they're fairly obvious. Um, But again, what tools will you have given them to be able to navigate those real-life dangers? And will they live as fearful people or as people of faith? And I'm here to tell you tonight that you do not have to live in fear. I refuse to live in fear in my life. And I know there are going to be bad things that happen to me. I know there are going to be challenges I'm going to have to deal with. We all will. But my prayer is that our faith will overcome our fear because God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind and sound judgment. And then number six, God gives peace as you raise your children. Isaiah 26 and verse 1 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Verse 1 through 3 is the context there. The context of Isaiah 24 and 25, uh, leading up to Isaiah 26, points to the day of the Messiah's ultimate triumph. And one of the things it indicates is that in the day of the Messiah's ultimate triumph, uh, there will be joyful singing. There will be celebration of what God has done. And God will appoint salvation, the language that's in the scripture, for walls and bulwarks. From beginning to end, the city of God will be about salvation. And the Lord is our source of strength and the Lord is our source of peace. Now, I love the Hebrew here because the term perfect peace in the Hebrew, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on him or on thee. The term perfect peace in the Hebrew 
is shalom, shalom. Peace, peace. What does a repetition indicate? The repetition indicates intensity. He's telling us that there is something that, this is not just normal peace. Yes, shalom is good. But you know what's better? Shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. That's even better. F.B. Meyer said, understand, dear soul, that it is the privilege of God's people to live inside the double doors of God's loving care. He says, peace, peace. If one assurance is not enough, he will follow it with a second and a third. What's the key to the peace? Keeping our mind stayed on him. The, words, the phrase stayed on him means settled upon, established upon, built on the Lord himself. There's so much lack of peace in the world. And if you stay your mind on that stuff, you will lack peace in your life. You have to intentionally, purposefully, I'd say even aggressively, keep your mind stayed on the Lord rather than on the lack of peace that the world is presenting to you. The mind is so important. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. The Bible says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. The Bible says that we can have the mind of Christ. It says we are not to set our minds on earthly things, but to set our minds on things that are above. The Christian life is not an unthinking life. It is a thinking life. But the Christian life that is a thinking life is setting our minds on the things that are essential. And our minds have to be stayed. That means to lean upon or to take hold of. It means to establish. It means to uphold, to sustain. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be weighed down by worry as you try to raise your kids. You don't have to be weighed down by worry as you try to influence your grandchildren. There are things that are out of your control. But if you will stay your mind on the Lord, he will help you have the peace that you need to help you help your children and to help you help your grandchildren if you'll trust in him. I want to close our time with a quote from uh, Paul David Tripp and a parenting book that one of you actually referenced to me that I've read several times and used in uh, parenting uh, preparation and counseling. And uh, he gives 14 gospel principles that can radically change your family. And I will read about a paragraph uh, from the book. He said, when you think your job is to change your child and you've been given the power to do it, your parenting will tend to be demanding, aggressive, threatening, and focused on rules and punishments. In this kind of parenting, you are working to make your children into something rather than to work rather than working to help them to see something and to seek something. In this form of parenting, it is all about you and your children rather than you being an agent of what only God can do in your children. Your hope is that you will exercise the right power at the right time and in the right way so that you can change your children as a result. And then he says this, That process is profoundly different than working to be a useful tool in the hands of a God 
of glorious transforming grace who alone is your hope and the hope of your children. Who is the change agent in your home? Is it God transforming them by grace, using you as an instrument to do that? Or do you think somehow you've got the control and the power to do it? It's a vast difference. And I'm going to tell you, God is a far better parent than I could ever hope to be and far more faithful. Let's pray together as we close out this session. Father, I'm grateful tonight that we have what we need in your provision to be godly parents and to encourage godly homes. We're imperfect. We make mistakes. We sin. We do things wrong. Uh, Lord, we have lapses of judgment. But I pray in all of it that our heart would be in the right place, that we would want to honor you, to have faith, to experience peace, to be guided by wisdom, and to know, Lord, ultimately, our families belong to you, and you are a faithful father. So I pray for every family represented, whatever their circumstance is, as they're uh, helping to guide and to shape their family units. Help us, Lord, that uh, we would see good fruit that would be born out of good trees and that as we do it, it will be for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. I pray for the specific needs that are represented among the families here. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us and give us the wisdom and the direction that we need and the encouragement that we need and the power of your spirit that we need in our lives. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.